Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, the Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. All right, Dan, well, uh, thanks for joining in. Um, You'd reached out to me, and I think it's a perfect fit for... um, the podcast here. Uh, you have written and published a book. I found it out on Amazon a little bit earlier today. Capitalism Killed the Middle Class, 25 Ways the System is Rigged Against You. And um, how long ago did you, did you write the book? Uh, it took me four years to write it. It finally got published in March of 2019. And um, I really feel a need to, uh, to get it out to the next generation because that's who I wrote it for. So that's why I continue to uh, to um, put the word out about it. Yeah, the the next generation. So if you don't mind saying, how old are you there? I'll be 66 next month. Okay. Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, tomorrow actually is my birthday. I will be 41 tomorrow. So would Happy you consider? Birthday. Thank you. <laughs> would you consider me the next generation? Uh, yes, uh, you're on the tip of the. Uh, you're on the cusp of the next generation. Let's put it that way. Uh, there are people coming up rapidly behind you that um, are, uh, that's where I'm staking my biggest hope because they seem to realize that the labor movement is a no brainer that uh, they need to uh, stabilize their futures. And uh, that's one way to do it. Yeah. I mean, even today, I um just an example. Um, I, um, had a uh, job layoff last year. Um, it was right before COVID hit, and so it technically was not COVID-related. The company that I work for, I called it a purge every year, and the purge just oh. happened to hit me, and then COVID hit. But I was very fortunate. I was able to um, you know, find another job pretty quickly, but it was a contract job. And uh, oh. that company had a 401k, and... Um, so I, you know, for tax reasons, you know, got some money into that 401k, but there was some money that even after I rolled over, some money showed up again. So I was actually calling them today to see, okay, what's this new money, which is, oh, great, it's more money, but now there's another fee to roll that over. <laughs> so, exactly. um, you know, I, I worked in banking and mortgages for over a decade during, you know, my, uh, my you know, work career, and it always kills me to, to pay a fee or whatever. But, um, you know, definitely I'm, I'm with you there because I don't think that people really bat an eye when they think about this kind of stuff, but it, I, I think you hit on some of these points in your book there. Yes. So um, the four, and also the, another thing that um, that I thought about when I heard about your your book there, you know, I get these emails that people want to reach out and be a ghostwriter for me, and I'm like, I don't know that I have a story, and I don't, I think, I feel like I'm too ADD. I tell people <laughs> that I grew up on Sesame Street, um, 
and it's not mom's fault. Mom was a single mom. She plopped me down in front of Sesame Street. And I feel that it led to me being pretty ADD. I'm kind oh. of near away from being millennial or whatever. But I don't know that I have the patience to sit down and actually write a book. It's pretty cool it took you four years to put that together. Yeah, my next one took uh, maybe two months, but that was a novel. Um, yeah, this was a, a slog, believe me. I started writing as a memoir and realized that uh, to be really relevant to the next generation, I not only had to tell my story, but I had to sort of give them a glimpse of the future, what they were looking at, things like the gig economy, uh, universal basic income, and uh, some of the holdovers from our generation, like uh, the criminal injustice system and uh, the uh, fading middle class. So you combine those together to sort of give them a, a, an idea of what's ahead of them, and uh, they can that way um, be able to react to it in a much more educated, informed manner. Yeah. And so my mom is just slightly younger than you. She hopes to retire this year, um, but she's, um, she's actually too uh, young for Medicare. So this year she um, will be old enough to draw Social Security, but she's got a couple more years before she is um, going to be able to draw uh, or, or, um, collect, or excuse me, um, get Medicare. And so we went to lunch recently for her birthday, because her birthday was this month too, and uh, she sat down and she goes, I can't figure the, any of this out. You're going to have to help me. And <laughs> I just kind of sat there and looked at her for a second. I said, okay. So I went out to you know healthcare.gov. I did a screen print, sent her a PDF, and she goes, oh, well, this may not be too bad. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it didn't take all that much effort. So this is, you know, 41-year-old son talking to 62-year-old mother. <laughs> and, but that's just that generational difference. Then I look back at my grandparents who are no longer with us, and I look at the difference in what they had. I remember both sets of grandparents, you know, retiring fully. I remember being able to go to their homes as a child and, you know, again, fully retired. They had all the time they were able to travel. They had, you know, no money issues. Um, and they were comfortable. I don't know that my mom and dad are in that same financial position. Yeah, a lot has changed in the uh, years since your grandparents retired. Uh, a lot of these social contracts, uh, even pensions, uh, have uh, been turned on their head. And uh, uh, for instance, uh, Detroit, they had uh, all these. Uh, uh, the city had all these uh, pensions that they were supposed to uh, fill, and, and they they didn't. They spent the money instead. So when uh, it came time to pay up, there was no more money there, and and they reneged on their their promise to uh, their workers and. And we're seeing too, so much of that across the nation. Uh, there are now more right-to-work states than there ever have been, 27 out of 50. And that is, is because those uh, com uh, the companies within those states and the states themselves realized that there were unfunded mandates that uh, were uh, never going to be paid off, and they just reneged on them. Yeah. It, it's, it's truly... So I don't know if you've seen or heard or seen some stories. How are Republicans mostly 
able to um, get their base to agree that somehow labor unions are not in their best interest. I don't know if you've had come across any stories or how have you seen um, you know uh, that actually come to fruition. I've uh, actually done lots of battles with people like that on Facebook and otherwise, but uh, it's because they, they think they have the that someday they're going to make it big and they're going to be able to uh, to uh, be part of that uh, special class of the one percent or at least the top ten percent. But um, they lie; they uh, tell half truths. And um, one of the things I discovered when I was lobbying in Washington D.C., I talked to a couple of Republican Congress people and said, "Though, why are you against unions?" And they were able to go back and say. Um, back earlier in their careers, they had uh, taken a grievance to somebody or just been ignored by a union rep, and that was why that colored their whole perception for the rest of their lives. And I think uh, we owe um, something to the people that we represent to make sure that we represent them and advocate for them in the best manner that we can. Yeah. Um I have an interest in aviation. I, I tell a lot of people that in a past life or in another life, I would have been a pilot uh, for whatever strange reason. Um, and in hindsight, um, because uh, aviation kind of ebbs and flows with the economy, um, I think it would have been maybe a good time to do it when I was actually going through school. But whatever, I, I work in IT and it is what it is. But I, you know, following uh, aviation and um, my past job, I actually traveled a good bit for work, but I remember sitting next to a flight attendant once. We were landing in New York City. Um, it was, I think, Atlanta to New York City, and uh, we were about to land, and all of a sudden, this gentleman, he pulls out a jump seat in the middle of the aisle. I just happened to be in the, the back of uh, first class. I'd gotten upgraded for that trip, and he sits down, and I was like, oh, well, you know, where, where did you come from? And he says, oh, I'm actually jump seating. He was a flight attendant. And, you know, got in a really nice conversation with him. And he was an ex-Northwest flight attendant that now works for Delta. And of all places, he was based in Hawaii, I think in Honolulu. And he was part of a very small base of flight attendants that used to be with Northwest. And he actually, um, we somehow got on the conversation of uh, labor unions. And, he's, and one of the comments he made, he says, I miss the union. Because when Delta took over, one of the yeah. actions they did is they got rid of the Northwest Flight Attendants Union. That was one of the deals they made when Delta took over. And if I'm not mistaken, the only two unions left at Delta uh, Airlines um, is the pilots union and the dispatchers. Those are the only two labor unions that I'm aware of. There may be some smaller ones that have to do with their ground operations. I have to double check that. But the pilots union at Delta is extremely powerful. And if you look at their political contributions, they actually contribute to both sides of the aisle. I've, I've actually looked through FEC and the Delta pilots union was contributing to people like Johnny Isaacson. Who was the yeah, it's funny. Guy. It's funny because uh, a lot of these unions, for instance, Patco back at, uh, in the uh, 80s uh, when Ronald Reagan was running for president, 
they were saying how dangerous their job had become, air traffic controllers. And um, Reagan sent them a letter saying, you know, if you help me get elected as president, I will help you. And that's where this whole thing started, where uh, they were not being uh, uh, fired because they were union. It was because uh, they were, um, uh, what was the expression they used? Uh, they were uh, being permanently replaced. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of them are, are, a lot of those pilots, I guess, come out of a military background. And, and so they're already predisposed to being somewhat conservative. And uh, so um, what they have to realize is uh, uh, that um, their, their, their background is not necessarily going to save them when it comes time for a political decision. Right. And so, you know, we, we talked, going back to the, the flight attendant there, kind of went on a little bit of a tangent, but it's somewhat related. But he was saying that he missed his union because even the conversation that he and I were having right there, even though he was off duty and just, you know, flying to get to the next uh, airport, he says, I could be mm-hmm. fired over this conversation right here. What? Wow. He, he said that someone could overhear this conversation. Someone could sell it and say something. And, you know, it, he no longer had his union to fight for him. And, That's true, um, yeah. and, and, and it just, and, and, and for him to have been so long, and I assume he's still there, he had a lot of seniority. Um, and most, and even the non union, you know, Delta flight attendants, they have been there a long time. And they have votes, as I hear, that, um, and they keep on, you know, rallying. And, and the, the, the seniority, the folks there, I think, still keep voting it down. And they have a lot of younger folks that keep joining. And they keep hearing, you know, well, the union's not going to help me out. But it, it's just this constant back and forth. But it was very interesting. I always go back to that uh, experience and hearing his, um, you know, uh, standpoint from that, too. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there's this thing that uh, uh, Congress, uh, Congress, House of Representatives has already passed it. It's going to be going to the Senate. It's called the PRO Act, uh, Protecting the Right to Organize. And uh, one of the uh, things in there says that uh, people will not be um, uh, penalized because they're talking union. So I'm hoping uh, that that passes, and we shall see, I guess. Uh, The votes aren't there in the Senate, so it may take a while before we're actually able to to get it passed. But um, that's one of the things that will happen with the the PRO Act. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's also interesting, your um, your efforts with lobbying. Um, uh, any other stories that you might have? It, it's always interesting, uh, just the few stories that I've had over the past couple of years of hearing stories of lobbying and uh, the phone calls that are made and the connections that are had. But any other uh, interesting stories that you might have from your lobbying days? Well, one time uh, we, uh, one, we were trying to get an appointment with a, a Republican up in Sacramento, our state capitol, and uh, she was not returning our calls to, to schedule an appointment. So we just showed up at the office and said, well, can we meet with somebody? We got somebody available now. And they said, nope, sorry, we're busy. And so I went out to their lobby and told some other unions that uh, didn't have uh, people in that uh, constituency, and they said, well, this isn't right. And we all went and we just crowded into the office and they finally said, okay, okay, we'll meet with you. So I don't know if it actually accomplished anything because they're already uh, predisposed 
against us, but the fact that uh, we're able to use a little muscle to finally get heard made a big difference to to us. And uh, there's been so, all sorts of things like that. Um, I, I had some friends in the the, uh, the state um, state assembly, uh, uh, to, uh, the office of uh, the uh, the head of the state assembly, and uh, there was an egregious bill that uh, uh, didn't do anything for labor. Uh, it was very anti-labor. And I went to them and I said, uh, have you guys looked at this bill? And they said, uh, no. Uh, do you like it? And they said, no, we, we hate it. And they said, it's gone. And that afternoon, it was pulled from the, uh, the, the list of uh, bills to be considered. So um, we do get some. <coughs> Hang on a second. That's all right. Sorry, I got a little dog and a, and a, he thinks he's a big dog, um, like a lot of us do. But um, those are the kinds of stories that uh, are important for people to realize. I t- uh, did a lobby in school. I taught stewards on how to lobby, and I uh, showed them that uh, no matter who you talk to, there's always going to be somebody that's going to be absolutely against whatever it is you're bringing to their office. And you just have to uh, say thank you for your time and move on. And um, those are the kinds of stories that uh, need to be told because uh, these people are just regular folks, but a lot of their perceptions are colored by their past or who they associate with. So we need, as union members, to get out there and show the face of labor. Uh, So often these CEOs make decisions about downsizing and, and firing people without realizing who they're, they're doing it to. And, and we need to make those kind of decisions agonizing for them every single time because um, it affects people's lives. Yeah, and your dog agrees. <laughs> um, so what, um, what, what industry did you mostly uh, work in there? What, what, what part of uh, uh, labor did you work in? Telecommunications. Uh, we uh, represented the people that work for AT&T. Gotcha. Yeah, um, I had a uh, former coworker that, um, for example, he was out in California. I forget the local telco, but um, he and I had a conversation one day that he still maintains a local landline because it is a regulated, um, you know, landline. All of these uh, internets, um, you know, fiber connections and data connections, they're not regulated like a true, you know, copper landline. And um, AT&T has no interest in selling those because they don't make any money on them anymore, but he still maintains that um, that copper connection and, and all that. Well, also, in the, uh, an earthquake, especially here in California, you need to consider uh, what's going to happen uh, with uh, a cellular tower. Uh, they can easily topple over, and even if they don't, their backup battery is only good for a maximum of four hours. So you're, you're going to lose uh, um, any ability to, uh, to talk to anybody outside the, your immediate area if that should happen. Uh, so that's why the copper line is still important, and that's why we emphasize it that people need to you know, keep those, even if they're in a back room somewhere, because uh, that, that will come in handy on that particular day. Yep. Um, and that has come up um, as well down in the Gulf of Mexico with the uh, the big hurricanes they've had, um, which you know, have, have not been helped by global warming and all that stuff going on. But there have been areas that were kind of rural 
and there were people that had you know ditched their landline and only had cell phones their batteries had died and their families had literally no way to contact them another thing uh, a voip a voice over internet protocol doesn't have the ability to track 911 uh, locations so if you're calling 911 from a one of those types of service they're not going to necessarily know where you are mm-hmm. yep we we definitely covered those um, but then I guess uh, going back to your book, there were a lot of different um, uh, topics, and I guess to, to bring this back to your uh, target demographic, um, the gig economy. What um, topics there uh, are in your book that might uh, pique the interest? Well, I did bring up uh, uh, the Uber situation, uh, but uh, a lot has transpired since my book was published. Uh, and um, we had, uh, in the legislature here in California, we passed a law called SB 22, that uh, tried to keep uh, workers from being exploited and called uh, contract employees when so much depended on uh, uh, the, uh, the company uh, as far as uh, providing the work and uh, a lot of other issues that made it clear that they were employees. And so um, that passed, but then Uber and Lyft brought this um, initiative. California has the initiative process where um, that's been taken over recently by uh, corporations, and they tried to get it, the law uh, passed that would uh, supersede uh, the legislature's bill and uh, make them contract employees again. And they were successful. They they had cer- certain uh, employees, or I should say, contractors who are willing to say that uh, I don't I don't need to to be uh, an employee. I I like this uh, being a freelancer, and. Uh, but uh, there, so th- that was passed, and so uh, again uh, they became contractors. Uh, the UK has recently passed a law uh, that said that they are not contractors; that they are indeed employees. So uh, at this point, I don't know what Uber and Lyft are going to do, other than uh, uh, maybe pull out of the UK. It'd be interesting to see. I remember when the um, the first wave of the stimulus bills last year. Um, the folks that drove for, you know, Uber, Lyft, and the food delivery services, they were included, which was ironic to me that you had a Republican-controlled, you know, House and Senate. Well, excuse me. Uh, well, I'm going to take that back. But you had a Republican president signing a bill that was going to give extended unemployed benefits to a group of employees that traditionally never would get that before. That was eyebrow-raising to me, that you had, you know, that party actually going against what traditionally they would do, um, you know, to, to cover those employees. Yeah, that, that was a shock. It was very surprising to me also. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know. That's where pork comes from, too. You uh, try to protect your own. Yeah, agreed. Um, but it, it, it truly, um, you know, some of the folks that I have encountered that, and th- this may sound the wrong way, I don't intend it to sound this way, but I, th- you know, I've, I've read some stories, um, you know, uh, news stories of folks that drive for Uber and Lyft and, and um, you know, these different um, gig economy uh, companies. And, um, you know, they're going to receive a 1099 at the end of the year and be expected to file something like a Schedule C or, you know, other income and all that. I... I don't know that they have the wherewithal to 
actually, you know, if they're living from paycheck to paycheck or from ride to ride, are they literally, is that all? You know, when all of that money just stopped, you know, when the pandemic hit and they're expecting that next check to come from, you know, unemployment or the stimulus checks, if there's nothing else literally there to support them, and also, if I'm not mistaken, these um, 1099 payments, there's no Social Security or Medicare benefits that would be there to protect them someday either. That's true. And so you're, you know, the Republican mentality is that, you know, we, we don't really support, um, you know, uh, government assistance and, and we don't, you know, support all these things. You know, it just, you're going to need to educate a population to be able to get there effectively. Otherwise, it, it's, it's, and I think this is along the lines of where your book is going, it, it's, it's never going to work, and it's just going to spiral out of control. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's funny that, um, because Richard Nixon was in favor of universal basic income, and uh, but his uh, people in his office said, uh, you can't be for that. That's, that's uh, going to be called Medicare for All, and it's going to... Um, ruin your your presidency um but um not that something didn't come along and ruin it anyway but uh that was um universal basic income the idea of it has been around for a really long time and uh recently we had a uh in stockton california we had a uh, um a test uh, of uh, the system there and they gave um 500 extra a month i guess to um about 500 people and uh, they found that uh, uh, they were able to dig out themselves out of the hole and, and start saving money again. So uh, it's proven to be a real success there. Gotcha. Um, the other thing that I've been hitting on, because it is tax season, um, I think the IRS has extended another month on this year's tax season. Um, May so 17th. Have, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually ironically hearing more people getting refunds. And my, myself, I was shocked. I had to do a spreadsheet to check my own figures. For whatever reason, we're getting a refund this year when we've had to pay the last couple of years. So, you know, we, we're very happy we put it in the savings and, you know, we're, we're doing well this year, thankfully. But um, the, the tax uh, situation, you, you've got this huge tax bill that Republicans gave to the corporations and the people that didn't need the tax benefit. And yet, you know, it looks like Democrats are going to try to do something about that. But these, and, and while all this is still going on, the, the debt that we are all incurring is just skyrocketing. Um, I don't know if your book talks on this or if you have any opinions on the, um, the tax situation and the debt. Uh, well, it was a little um, pressing in some areas, but I don't think that's one of the areas. Um, I do know. Well, actually, no. There's a chapter called "Death and Taxes," and it talks, but it talks mostly about what's been termed the the death tax uh, that Republicans complain about all the time. That doesn't affect anybody with le that makes less than a million dollars a year. Um, but um, yeah, uh, the tax situation um, is on the back of uh, the middle class because the poor don't make enough money to pay taxes 
and the rich have found ways to to uh, put it offshore. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, what, what we need is we need to go back to uh, corporations and the wealthy paying their fair share. Um, back in the 50s, when America was doing great, when we had excellent infrastructure, great schools, all of that was due to the fact that uh, corporations were paying a much higher percentage uh, to uh, to to operate in, in uh, the United States and in these communities. Uh, Dale Carnegie, for instance, helped out his community, and and uh, these guys were giants of industry, but they were also a little more um, giving than the current faceless corporations. Yeah, and then on top of that, here in Georgia, Republicans have signed a tax cut into law in the middle of all this going on. And guess what? The the average cut, it's going to be um, usually couples about $63 a year that they're going to go back to their constituents and claim that as a victory. I don't know about you, yep. but $63 won't even cover a lot of grocery bills. Now, from what I'm told, uh, this money, the uh, the uh, money that's been coming out, $1,400 a month, $2,000 or, or whatever it was, um, was going to be taxed uh, later on. So uh, I'm, I'm, if, did you get any of that? No. I mean, we're very, you know, um, uh, thankful, you know, that we um, are in a higher tax bracket. We don't need the, um, you know, the, the income threshold. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's also to be determined, you know, whether that is going to be uh, taxable for those that received it. I have had some friends that did receive the stimulus. They just put it straight into savings. Um, there, was well, also an, there was also another story. Um, unfortunately, there are some people that are going out and buying guns with the stimulus. I heard that too. <laughs> uh, just to let you know, that Bernie, I don't know if you knew this, but Bernie Sanders had actually um, submitted a bill that was uh, supposed to uh, be retroactive back to the beginning of the pandemic uh, to pay 2000 dollars a month uh, up through the end of the pandemic and uh, of course that didn't go too far but uh, from what I understand today uh, I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing your name right but the lady from, from Minnesota Tulane has uh, submitted a bill that, that's comparable to that so we'll see how far that goes Um, also, um, a topic that has come up on a couple of the uh, episodes here, and definitely being from California, um, it would be housing costs. Um, where in the world and how do we fix um, housing costs in the middle of all this? That is a good question because um, if, you, if you look at the market, there's probably somewhere between seven to ten houses in California uh, uh, for each homeless person that lives here. And uh, that's the thing. We uh, one of the things we have to do is is uh, cut back on the gentrification, and we have to uh, uh, find a way to keep the people who have housing now to, to actually keep it because uh, we don't need more homeless folks out on the streets. And uh, I think uh, homelessness is is part of that. Um, it's it's a um, example of housing not working and our economy not working. And uh, a lot of people really think capitalism is uh, the, the end-all, the end-all, but uh, 
uh, I'm just wondering why occasionally we have to have socialism step in and, and take care of these situations. But um, George Carlin once said that we should uh, take all the homeless and, and uh, close down the golf courses and uh, let them live there. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's the answer either. I think that um, we need to find a way to, um, in places like California, especially the Bay Area, which is very expensive, one of the most expensive places to live in the world, uh, we've got to find a way to um, uh, to uh, subsidize that. And um, maybe we could do that through uh, grants or things like that. Um, I guess there's a couple of bonds being floated here in California that are supposed to help with uh, the building of um, housing that uh, will incorporate um, businesses below and the housing above. And that's uh, proven to be a, a, a good um, situ- uh, situation, a good um, answer to some of the problems that we have with uh, density and, and housing. Because density is another problem that that, uh, that deals with housing because that's why so many people in California live in apartments because uh, that's the only place they can actually afford to live. And uh, that affordability has, has got to be tackled. And uh, like I said, situation is subsidizing and uh, the building of these um, um, housing areas that, that are built for both uh, business and uh, folks to live in. Yeah, certainly. Um may have lost Let's see if he dials back in gotcha so uh yeah um uh, I caught the the last in out of the um uh the uh, housing issue down there. Uh, Will, that um, co-hosts with me when he's able to, I'll try to get him to join us today, but he um, is uh, busy with work. Um, he works for a, uh, I'll call it a large tech company based in the Bay Area. Um, but he um, was um, in the Bay Area, and when the pandemic hit, he got approval to work remotely from anywhere. So he is relocated to Texas, mainly because of the housing cost it did not make any sense for him to stay in the Bay Area and pay that huge cost of living when he could, you know, relocate to Texas. And we've had, you know, already the, um, he's in Austin, Texas, and he's already had to deal with the power outages and all that drama since he's gone back to Texas. But it's the pros and cons of, you know, <laughs> living in Red yeah. Republican, Texas and dealing with all that versus everything that, you know, came with living out in the Bay Area, so... I actually uh, grew up in uh, along the Gulf Coast in a small town in Texas called Palash, and uh, it was uh, it was that was during my poor period, and I never want to I never want to look back because it was uh, uh, it was uh, my way or the highway kind of uh, atmosphere there, and it was not conducive to somebody like me who uh, I guess I was born progressive or liberal. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, it looks like you also have uh, two sequels, Rebuilding Union, Capitalism Kills, and the Global Edition. Um, working on those? Yes, I am. Um, the um, Capitalism, the Global Edition, uh, compares and contrasts four countries, uh, Morocco and Thailand, because I've been to both of those, and Norway and uh, France. Norway, because uh, year after year after year, this UN report comes out that shows uh, 
uh, how uh, income equality and, and things like that and uh, how they treat their workers. And that's what I'm trying to show what works and what doesn't work as far as uh, taking care of your middle class. And uh, that's, that's what I'm comparing and contrasting. Um, France has been a victim of their own success. And um, the, the, the uh, density of union members has dropped, dropped significantly. And uh, what they're suddenly realizing is that means that they have less leverage with the, uh, the uh, government of France. And uh, we've encountered that a long time ago. So we're, we're kind of uh, aware of that. And, uh, but uh, using those statistics, uh, that's what the other book is about, is uh, taking what we've learned and uh, from ourselves and from other countries and finding a way to to uh, re-bolster the union movement so that it uh, empowers more people and includes more people because uh, a lot of uh, Republicans, I guess you could say, are the ones that, that said, uh, you're a white-collar worker. Why do you need a union? And a lot of people said, yeah, you're right. Why am I paying all that money to a union when, when uh, I'm, I'm this glorified uh, paper pusher and uh, what they have to realize is that we're all in this together and uh, labor movement uh, the whole premise of my book is that the labor movement can be the salvation of the middle class in the United States yeah for sure and I actually that this reminds me especially if if this is going to be a a global focus um, a lot of people have not done this research Um, there is a um, uh, you can google this information a um, average India IT salary. So someone who works in IT, you know, um, uh, technology software in India um, can have a salary range of somewhere between 390,000. Uh, it's a wide range, 390,000 to 1.8 million rupees. So that's the what? Italian, um, not Italian, Indian, um, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, currency. Sorry. But when you do the, um, if you just do a simple uh, conversion of 1 million rupees to U.S. dollars, that's just over $13,766. Yeah, that, even that in, is, yeah, I don't know live on that. Yeah. And so that is the competition that these other countries are wielding against U.S. workers. And so that's where the labor unions are that, that's one of the huge, you know, um, battles that these labor unions have to uh, wage, especially with these technology jobs. Um, I know that uh, Google has decided to uh, form, you know, a labor union, and that's probably one of the um, uh, the, the things that they're up against uh, there. You know, because uh, as you say, uh, white collar workers, you know, the the excuse, you know, why do you need a labor union? But uh, that that could be something that um, they have to look at. Yeah, I actually talked to a government worker in uh, Mexico, and their minimum wage is fifty cents an hour. Yeah, how can you compete with that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then the other side of that, if if Republicans don't want to raise minimum wage here, but yet you allegedly want to bring jobs back to the U.S., how are people going to pay for the higher labor here? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Henry Ford even realized that, that uh, in order to be able to sell more cars, you needed to pay your workers a decent wage so they could afford to buy one. I don't know where this crazy um, circle game is, is going to end. It's, yeah. uh, we call it in the labor movement 
a race to the bottom. Uh, Chinese uh, people have started making enough money to where they can actually travel and, and uh, live a middle-class existence. So what happens? You move your operations over to Qatar or, or Bangladesh or someplace where they don't have those uh, worker uh, protections and, and uh, decent wages, and, and then you start all over again. And um, so I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that um, a lot of people here in the United States um, think that uh, we have to protect our jobs and, and our uh, jobs and um, the hell with the rest of the world. And I don't know if that's the right answer or if uh, there's something that lies between that that can protect all workers everywhere. Yeah, it, it is a constant battle for sure. All right, any other uh, parting words? Anything about the book or any other parting words that we missed? Yeah, actually, uh, are you aware of the Powell Manifesto or the Powell Memo? I saw it listed here. I did not get a chance to research it, no. Uh, in 1971, Lewis Powell was a judge, and a friend of his that worked for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said, we have to stop uh, these uh, Vietnam protesters and dirty hippies from talking bad about uh, big business here in the States and, and uh, take back the conversation. And uh, they asked him to write a memo about how they could do that. So what he did was he created a blueprint uh, that um, showed how they could take over uh, the conversation in schools and colleges and uh, think tanks and things like that. And uh, it worked so well that Nixon was so impressed, he appointed him to the Supreme Court. And uh, his previous... Uh, Notoriety had been fighting for the tobacco companies to say that smoking was not uh, addictive. And um, so uh, every Republican president since Nixon has adopted these policies. Uh, Reagan made copies of them for his staff so that everybody would be on board with uh, the the blueprint and the priorities of uh, his White House. And even Donald Trump followed a lot of the... uh, the issues that were brought up in the uh, uh, Powell memo. And what I recently did was I gutted the Powell memo and took all the words business and and capitalism out and put in uh, democratic socialism, progressive, and labor, and I sent that to the head of the AFL-CIO. Did you get a response? um, His special assistant said, thanks for sharing this. Uh, keep on dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, that's, that's interesting. I found a link. Uh, it looks like Greenpeace actually has a, a decent write-up on it. I'll include a link in the uh, the show notes here. Okay. Yeah, I'm waiting to see if there is going to be any more uh, feedback on that. I'm working with the Democratic Socialists of America now to try to implement some of that because I think that um, the way the labor movement is going to work to save the middle class and uh, to um, adapt to um, the the future is by working from the ground up. Yeah, because as we know, trickle-down economics, that, that doesn't work either. So. No, it's been found not to work. And there's also the uh, something else I wanted to bring up was the 1033 project. Uh, that's in my chapter about uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, to fight the uh, war on drugs, uh, they have a mandate that the De- Department of Defense um, sell some of their um, surplus uh, military goods 
to local law enforcement at bargain basement prices. Now, LA Unified School District owns two grenade launchers. Uh, they had a uh, MRAP, which is a, a vehicle that's supposed to be able to be impermeable to um, landmines. And uh, uh, I think 47 uh, 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 AK-40, no, uh, more than 20 AK-47. And what they were going to do with all this stuff, I don't know. Um, you're talking K through 12. What, I don't understand the, the thinking behind uh, Project 1033 and why these uh, uh, institutions of higher learning or even basic learning need that kind of uh, um, firepower. So the school district, you said, has a grenade launcher. Two grenade launchers, yes. Sounds like a uh, recipe for disaster. Exactly, especially if you haven't been trained to use them and, and some situation comes up like, uh, we have a school shooting or something like that. Of course, that never happens these days. Um, then um, those weapons could end up hurting the, the wrong people. And um, I, I just think this whole thing uh, leading from the war on drugs over to um, this uh, militarization of law enforcement needs to be really looked at again to see what the common sense answer should be. Yeah, and not only that, but also these, um, you know, the uh, the, sh the mass shootings have become uh, back in the press, unfortunately, again. And there was an idea that I found through some friends on social media. Um, so I believe in California, just like Georgia, you have to have, or you're supposed to have liability insurance on your car if you drive. Exactly. So um, we've already been warring with this about healthcare. So why is healthcare not a given? So maybe that's a little bit about um, out in left field. But what about guns? So your mortgage company makes you have you know home insurance, but they're more worried about the place burning to the ground. They're not worried about your liability. So why don't you have to have liability insurance if you choose to own guns? Makes sense to me. We could uh, uh, eventually uh, get rid of. Uh, the NRA, if they, uh, I mean, they're already on the ropes, I guess, as far as funding goes. But uh, this would really uh, put a, a nail in the coffin as far as uh, the pro-gun movement. If we had liability insurance on the, all those uh, weapons, and and uh, it, it makes a perfect uh, makes perfect sense to me that that we would uh, want to uh, have liability insurance because of uh, all these accidental shootings in the home and, and things like that. That uh, there are grievous situations that, that really need some kind of common sense answer. Yeah. And I did the, the looking at the numbers, the number of people killed in vehicular accidents is about the same number of people killed in gun accidents and, and gunfire. So, but yet exactly. cars, you have to have insurance, but not with guns. <laughs> right. Go figure that one out. So. Yeah. Cool. All righty. Um, any other topics for for this episode? Uh, no, not, not that I can think of. I'll get back to you on my uh, my novels later. I don't know if you guys really cover that sort of uh, stuff, though. Yeah, they, these are um, definitely relevant. For uh, the the main um, you know topic here, you know, like I said, uh, you spent some time in Texas, and Will is from Texas. He he named the podcast uh, "Goddamn Liberals" because you know oh, the. Uh, the <laughs> 
<laughs> we, we we live amongst a lot of uh, red Republicans around here, and they just you know if if they can't explain something, we're just a bunch of goddamn liberals. So that's where the name from the podcast came from. So. Well, I, I remember what it was like living down there, and um, yeah, like I said, I think I was born a liberal and progressive because uh, I just didn't fit in. <laughs> yeah, we 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 sometimes uh, you know, fit in that mold as well. So, um, also, if you think about it, I will publish this over to Spotify. It lets me put a song in front of the episode. So, if there's a particular song um, you think about, I will uh, publish that with a song over there too. So. Well, there's always Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll put that on the uh, fight. Uh, what is the fight for your rights, yeah? Yep. Yep, that'll be good. We'll, we'll put that on the, on the Spotify there. Excellent. All right. Well, I uh, appreciate the time there, and um, good luck, and uh, have cool. a safe trip down to Mexico. Um, did you get both of your uh, vaccines in? Oh, yeah. I got my second one yesterday, so uh, I won't be fully covered by the time I get on the plane, but um, what do they say, a week or something like that? Yeah, I think two weeks after the last one, you should be okay. Um, but even the folks that I've heard that have been down to Mexico, they say they're being pretty safe down there. So um, I think it'll be fine. Okay. But, um, yeah. things are, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel finally, so I, I think it'll be good. Yeah. Well, next time we'll talk about my Parkinson's in uh, my book and my novel. Yeah, looking forward to hear about it. Okay. Thanks, Thank Tim. you so much. Take care.